Right, good morning. Welcome uh, to the online worship resources for Church of the Apostles. We're so glad that you've taken a moment to stop and, and tune in with us as we continue in our series in the Book of Romans. And so we, we've been putting together these resources each week, just as you know, some of you not comfortable getting out yet and, and, and coming to a worship gathering. We've been worshiping here on site uh, for the last several months outside where we can social distance and do that. And so you're always invited. We'd love to see you. But for those that can't make it, we're glad that you can tune in this way and, and be joining us as we continue to spend time in God's word together. And so uh, let me pray for us. And then we're going to be looking at the second half of Romans chapter five today as we continue to move through that together. But let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to spend time in your word. We thank you uh, for the glory of what it tells us about who you are and what you've done for us and what it means for us. We pray this morning that as we see uh, just the extent the extent of our, our sinfulness uh, and how that shines a light just on the glory of what you've done for us in Jesus, I pray that you would just continue to teach us and lead us and guide us. We confess we can't do any of this without you. And so we pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would be our teacher as we spend time in your word. And it would be for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I don't know how many of you saw uh, the movie Noah that came out several years ago. Um, it was uh, kind of a, a retelling of, of Noah's Ark and that uh, story, biblical story. And it was it was very loosely based on the biblical account. And, and by loosely, almost not at all. Uh, it, w- it wasn't really a, a real great movie, but um, there were a couple powerful scenes, and there were a couple things in that movie that kind of stuck out to me uh, when I saw it. And, and one was, uh, and I'm going from memory, so I don't remember the exact details, but there was a scene in the in the movie where Noah is on the ark, and, and the flood has come, and this great flood is overtaking the face of the earth, and, and he's having this dream of, of thinking about the evil in the world and the things that he sees that are out there. And as he dreams and as he uh, is, is going through this in his mind, he sees uh, at the end of his dream that this evil that's in the world is inside of him. That it's not just out there, but it's in him. And he awakes in a panic and he's like, he, he sees and he understands that it's not going to be eradicated because it's in him as well. And it was one of the few scenes in that movie that I, I felt like got it really right, that it understood that there is this this clear picture that we see throughout Scripture that's the sinfulness of mankind, that it's in each and every one of us, that we all have a great propensity for evil. We all have a uh, struggle with our sinfulness and our nature. And so what we could say really is that the dividing line of good and evil runs through each and every single one of us. That it's not out there, but it's in here. It's, it's in our own hearts. And so Blaise Pascal, who was uh, a great uh, philosopher and thinker, he was a French mathematician, but he was also a believer. He had this quote where he said, as he talked about just that uh, coming to grips with the, the seriousness uh, of the beauty and glory of how God has made us in his image, but also the sinfulness of man. And so Pascal said it this way. He said, what a chimera then is man. What a novelty, what a monster, what a chaos. What a contradiction, what a prodigy. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, sewer of uncertainty and error, the glory and scum of the universe. And he brings those 
seeming contradictions together that man is made in God's image but yet at the same time that we are sinful and that we are broken and we we know this and we see the effects of it all around us I mean we see it in our world we see uh, back over our history a great propensity for evil and violence for suffering for wars for genocide the things that we see all around our world and we see very clearly the sinfulness of man in all things and so down through the ages, as it's always been there as part of uh, mankind and, and civilization, is the, the debate of why is that the case? Why is it that we see this sinfulness in everything at, at all times and in all these ways? And so uh, as we look at Romans chapter 5, the second half here, Paul's going to shed some light on that. And he's going to help us understand the extent of sinfulness that we see in the world. And you may say, well, that's great. We're going to spend time thinking about how sinful we are and how we see it and the fullness of it. But it's an important subject for us to look at. Paul's going to take the whole second half of this chapter 5 to really kind of pull into this and help us to see this more clearly. And it's important for us to see, to understand the extent of sinfulness, because what it's going to do here is he's going to use it as a way to shine a light on the glory of what Christ has done. And so he's going to look at sin and how it's entered and how it's spread to all men, but how Jesus comes and can make that right. And by holding those two together, we see it more fully. And we'll talk about why that's so important for us to see. And so the way I want us to look at Romans chapter 5 here this morning together. It's just first we're going to consider the extent of sin and evil in the world and, and why it's so widespread, what that looks like. And then secondly, as we see the extent and why that's the case, we're going to turn our gaze towards Jesus and what he's done. And the light of that uh, truth shines all the more brightly when we put those two together. And so that's what we're going to do with the second half of Romans chapter 5. And so let's look at that together. You know, if you were following uh, here online or you were with us last week as we gathered, we went through the first half of Romans chapter 5 as Andy took us through that. We talked about the blessings that come from being justified by faith and what Jesus has done, that we are made righteous by what he's done and how it addresses our past and our present and our future. And we looked at that and how it affects everything in our whole lives. And then we get here to verse 12 in chapter 5, and it says, therefore, and so Paul often does this. He kind of uses that as a transition or a turn. Oftentimes when he says, therefore, what he's doing is he's just summarizing what he just said, and then he's building on it and moving forward. But here, in some ways, this therefore is a little bit of a different transition. He's not taking directly what he just said here in the first half of chapter 5, but, he, but he's making a shift to kind of go back and, and bring together uh, an idea that he's been following through in chapters 3, the end of chapter 3 and 4, and now in chapter 5. And it's, it's this idea is that we're, we're all in need, every single one of us, all people. The extent and depth of our sin problem that all of us are in desperate need of a Savior, that we all our only hope is to be saved by grace through faith. And he's even talked about that in chapter 4 with Abraham. And he goes back and he points the picture that even Abraham was saved in that way. And so here he's going to talk about this sinfulness and how we're all in need. And so, uh, yes, it, it's true, and he, and he spent time in this, right, that we are all sinful. If you've been with us as we walk through Romans or you're familiar with the book of Romans, in chapter 1, 2, and 3, he spends a lot of time building that case that every single one of us is sinful, that every single one of us is in need 
that none of us has measured up, and we know this. He, he makes that case by saying our conscience bears witness, that when we look at God's word, we see clearly that uh, we don't measure up. And so through our conscience and, and through God's word, we see uh, this clear, crystal clear picture that all of us is sinful and none of us is measured up. But here, I want us to think about just a moment where that came from, why that's universal, why we see that in every culture and every age and every time that we see that we're all sinful and we're all struggling and none of us measure up and we all have that. And he's going to answer that question. He's going to kind of drill into that. And so let's look at verse 12 together in Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we're going to just stop there for just a second. He's looking back uh, to sin entering the world. We could go back and read about this in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Really, chapter 2 and 3 were introduced to the very first people, Adam and Eve. And God places them in this garden that he's created. And he gives them dominion over it. And tells them they're going to go and have dominion over the earth and multiply and do all these wonderful things. And they are there with God. And they have this relationship with him. And God makes them in such a way that they can see things as they are. They're morally, in a sense, of seeing things. They know who God is. They know he is their father, that he is the creator. They see that clearly. But God gives them the ability to make real choices with real consequences. And as we read through in Genesis uh, chapter 2 and then chapter 3, we see that. And God really has one rule, and we could go back and look at those those chapters, and there's a whole lot there, but just for the sake of time, I'm going to kind of distill it down this morning. But he gives them this one rule that basically just says, trust me, that he is the creator of all things. And he tells them that it's all theirs to use and to have dominion, but to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what that represents and, and what God is, is showing them is that there is part that just to trust God in his world and the way he created it. And that he knows how it works best. And so just trust me on this. And he says, and if you don't, and if you, you go against what I've told you and you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. And we see that in Genesis 2 and then 3. What we see is that they sin, that they do go against what God's told them. They make the choice to ignore God and the world he created. They sin. And as sin enters the world, God tells them, you will now surely die. And there's going to be all sorts of issues that come into the world because of that. Uh, we see this, this picture, this stark reality as sin enters the world. And so here Paul's pointing back to that. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. But then in verse 13 he says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And so he's talking about how there there were every person from those very first people of Adam and Eve and as sin entered the world before the law would come, which we see in Exodus, which is uh, several hundred years later as God gives the law uh, to Moses. And we see that in Exodus. People were still sinning and their conscience was still bearing witness, although they didn't have the direct law of God. And so he says that even though it's not counted in the sense that they're not aware of everything and every part of it, Sin is still there, and people are still sinning, and it's still in all people. And then look at what he says in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so what he's saying is here is that uh, that we see clearly that sin was in the world, and it had spread to all people because all people died. 
And so we go back to that very beginning of what he says here in verse 13. Just as sin came in through the world through one man and death through sin. Death enters because of our sinfulness. God told Adam and Eve that. They sin, they make it actual in their life, and then it spreads to every single person, and we see every person dying. And he says, even those that didn't die in the same way, or or didn't sin in the same way that Adam did. You see that in verse 14. Even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, they were still dying. And so he's pointing us clearly to this idea that sin entered through one man, and in doing so, it spread to everyone. That we are born into it. That we inherit the sinfulness in our, in our very being, being human because we are descendants of the first ones and sin entered through them. And so he makes this case throughout the chapter very clearly, the end of the chapter. If you look at verse 15 and 16, 17, uh, or yeah, 15, 17, 18, 19, he says this over and over. For the one many, he uses this kind of conception. And he says this over and over, uh, like verse, uh, 15 there. He says, many died through the one. You see that in verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, or or verse 17, for because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Or we get to verse 18, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Or verse 19, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So you see the, the way, the kind of formula Paul's using. For the one, the many. And so death came through this one man and it spread to all men. And so uh, what he's showing us is, is uh, twofold, I think, on what he's doing here. If you look back at verse 14, he says, uh, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who were not sinning in the transgression, was not like the transgression of Adam. And then he says, who was a type of the one who was to come? He's talking about Adam and then he's going to make a comparison to Jesus. And he's saying a type in that we're going to compare these two because just as sin entered through this one man and spread to all people and all were condemned because of the sin, Adam's sin, our, our, our ancestor, it spread to all men. So too, as Jesus comes, he's going to provide a way for all men through what he does for us. And you see the comparison. And he's going to do that to show you the glory of what Christ has done. And by looking at the two together, we see it more clearly. And so he's going to unfold that for us. But there's another reason I think he's doing that and he's showing it, is he's pointing us back to the universal effects of sin and why it's in all people, why we see it everywhere. He's answering that question for us. And so I want us to consider that for just a second. If he goes, what he says here right at the beginning, just as sin came into the world through one man, that through Adam and Eve and their very first ancestors, that they are our common ancestor. And we could trace back and we could see. And and by the way, you don't have to believe in the Bible to believe this. You don't have to believe in Christianity. You don't have to believe what Paul says here to believe this. We know uh, through uh, genetics and through research and through science that we can trace ourselves, people, back to a common ancestor. A lot of work has been done on this. And we see that we all go back to the same beginning, every single one of us. That's an undisputed fact. You don't have to take that on faith. We know that. And so we go all the way back and, and we all start in the same place. Which, by the way, this, this is a side note, but it's an important one to at least consider. If you really stop and think about the reality of that, you see how ridiculous racism is. That we all 
can trace back to the same common ancestor. That we all have a brotherhood of all mankind, and it's not, uh, and it doesn't matter what your skin color is or the, where you grew up or what that looks like. We all go back to the same place. If we then add to what Scripture tells us, is we all go back to a same common ancestor, and we're all made in God's image, equal in worth and value. And those things together give us this powerful picture of why racism makes zero sense at all. That it goes directly against God's design. But here I want us to think about uh, tracing back to this common ancestor. That God gives a real choice with real consequences is what scripture tells us. And and, and Adam and Eve, as, as God places them in the garden and everything was good, it says they were naked and unashamed. And they had, they had a, a clarity a moral clarity that they could see things as they are, that they saw that God was their father and creator. They saw all the things before them. They could see it for what it was. But what happened is as they sinned, as they decided to rebel against God, that they could define themselves by what they were doing rather than what God had said, and they decided they didn't need him to define for them. Sin entered the world, as Paul says, and through one man, sin entered and death with it. And I want you to think about what happens there. Uh, this is maybe helpful to think of it this way. I think of it almost as like our, our DNA, our genetic code. That our very first ancestors, those very first people, had a clarity, a moral clarity that we don't have now. That they could see things as they are. And they saw them very clearly. And as they did, and then they sinned and they rebelled against God, sin entered in the world and, and it changed it fundamentally changed people. It changed us to make ourselves believing sinfully, wrongly, that we're the center of the universe rather than God. To rebel against him and to make it all about us rather than him. And as sin enters into the world and it comes into them, then they go and they propagate and they begin to fill the, the earth. They multiply as God tells them and generation after generation is now born into the sinfulness as the code has changed. There's been a profound change as sin entered the world. And so every successive generation is born into that. And the Bible tells us that. Uh, we're no longer morally neutral. There's a sinfulness that we are born into, a depravity that we have, that sees that we are the center of all things rather than God being the center. And that is our default, our sinfulness, that it's all about us. And so you see throughout Scripture as it presents to us uh, the idea that we are born into this sinfulness. For example, in, in uh, Psalm 51, David will talk about being brought forth in iniquity. And if you go and you read the fullness of Psalm 51, what you'll see is that David is confessing his sinfulness. And he's seeing it so clearly um, through... Uh, everything and he's saying i was even brought forth in iniquity and not just that his mother was sinful but that he was born into this sinfulness or you can go to ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 and it talks about by nature we are children of wrath that this is our natural state as we are born into it because we are sinful and god's wrath his holy righteous anger rests on us or you could go to romans chapter 7 which we'll get to in a few weeks where Paul says, nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. And apart from the Spirit and God doing this and this, His grace in my life, there's nothing good in me. And so we see this consistent witness throughout Scripture that we are born into sinfulness. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God in our lives, we cannot please God. 
that we are sinful and broken and we will make things about ourselves rather than glorifying God the way we were created to be. And so it's a universal problem that gets passed down from our first ancestors into every single person. And we are all in need of grace. We are all slaves to sin apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Every single one of us. And so I want you to consider why that's so very important for just a moment. If we don't understand the depth of our depravity, we will continue in the lie that we can somehow save ourselves. I'm going to say that again. If we don't understand the depth of our depravity, of our sinfulness, we will continue in the lie that we somehow can save ourselves. I meet people every day. They hear you're a pastor and they start to ask, just what do you do? You say it and then suddenly they start to give you their religious resume. Oh, well, I grew up in the church or my uncle was a pastor or I used to go here or do this or whatever. And they start to kind of make a case for themselves. And that's our default of our heart, that we want to make ourselves, justify ourselves by what we do. I'm a pretty good person because of X, Y, and Z. And the fundamental underpinning of that type of thinking is that I am a pretty good person and I can do some things to make myself acceptable before God. All of us knows we're sinful. Paul's already made that case. Our conscience bears witness. Scripture clearly tells us every single one of us is sinful and not measuring up to what God has called us to be and created us to be. And so what we do is we seek to justify ourselves by what we do. That is a misunderstanding of our sinfulness and the depths and the fullness and the extent of it. We can never, ever do enough to make ourselves uh, righteous before God. That has put ourselves in a perfect right standing with a holy God. We cannot do it. And what Paul's showing us here is why that's the case, because we are born into this sinfulness. Because of one man's sin, sin spread to all men, and all men die. We are all guilty and all deserving of death. Every single one of us. And when we miss this, it not only leads us away from salvation, which only comes from confessing, I can't do this, and I need God to do for me what I can never do for myself, but it also leads us away from growth as a Christian. We can say, I, I am sinful and I can't do it and I desperately need God to do it for me. And then still go back to thinking that I grow based on what I do rather than what God has done. We can say, I'm saved by grace through faith. I'm justified by what Christ has done. And now my sanctification, that is my growth in likeness of who God is and what he's created me to be, is up to me. And again, that's a misunderstanding of my depravity. I can't do that on my own. And so it's so very important that we understand this. But there's a second thing here too. If we don't see sin as the problem in our lives and in the world and all around us, we will identify something else as the problem and then we will look for solutions that are other than Jesus, our Savior. And you see this all around you every day. Instead of getting to the root heart of our problem, which is our rebellion against God and our sin towards him, we will diagnose it with something else. It's, it's kind of like if uh, you're misdiagnosed with uh, disease, right? So forgive the poor analogy. If you're a medical professional, it'll maybe sound ridiculous. But let's say I go into the, the doctor and I'm having chest pains and they diagnose me with heartburn when I have a genetic heart defect that's going to kill me. And I say, no, 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 just take this pill and it'll take care of this burning that you have. And it's actually just heartburn and that's all you've got. 
right? We're not diagnosing what the actual problem is, and we're, in fact, missing it completely, and it's going to lead to eventual death because it's going undiagnosed. Does that make sense? That's the same here. When we don't see sin as the ultimate problem, we're going to see something else as the problem, and then we're going to look to address it in ways that won't actually ever fix it. Give you an example. Just happened recently. Maybe you've been following it. Maybe you've seen it in the news. There's been uh, protests all around the country because of police brutality, racism, different things. Things that we've talked about that we should be against. Anytime there is a misuse or abuse of power, we should be for justice. God calls us to that. The same too. We just talked about racism being totally at odds with the way God has created us and made his world. And so we should be against those things. But what happens is then people go and they seek to uh, address the problems in different ways without identifying what is the issue. And so in Seattle, protesters took over several uh, blocks within the city limits and they expelled the police from their midst. The police that they felt like were, were taking advantage and not doing a good job and they weren't doing what they were called to and they were uh, causing issues. And there's a whole lot there that we could talk about. But they take over these several blocks within the city. And if you followed it at all, it lasted an experiment that lasted about three weeks. They kicked the police out and they took over themselves. And this was going to be their autonomous zone that they were going to kind of remake what they thought it should be. And if you followed it at all, it lasted only about three weeks. Within a week, they had shootings. Within two weeks, they had given people guns to be armed guards. Within by week three, two people were murdered. And the truth is, when you look at that story and you look at what happens, that they were thinking that, man, we're going to expel these people and get them out, and they had addressed the problem. The problem is the police and the way they do things will get rid of them. And then what they forgot, and what quickly happens, is the dividing line of good and evil runs through the heart of every single person. We are all sinful, and we are all in need. And just as there was a mess as soon as they took over, just as there's a mess in different countries, it's all there because of the sinfulness of people. It's in every single one of us in every place. And when we identify something that is the, as the problem that's not the problem, and we miss the heart that's underneath it, the sinfulness in our rebellion against God, it will never fully eradicate the problem. We desperately need a Savior. And so that's what Paul's going to say here. That's the answer to the problem. As we see the extent of that evil, the only way that we see the answer of the problem is by seeing our Savior, Jesus. And that's exactly what he does here if you follow along and what he's saying, his conception here in this, the way he talks about it. The one for the many. We said in verse 14, uh, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so then he says, through the one sin through the one condemnation, through the one talking about Adam. Sin entered and all these things happened. But then if you look at the second half of all those verses, if you go back to verse 15, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. He says Adam's a type. Just as sin entered through Adam and spread to all men, so too through Jesus our Savior. He's come and what he's done is now available for all men based on what he has done, the one, the one perfect one, the one God-man that has come, that is fully God and fully man to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he starts to take that formula and he's showing you, just as it was this bad through Adam, it is this great and glorious through Jesus. 
And so you see it in, in verse 17. If by the one man's trespass death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is undoing the work of Adam. Yes, we are all sinful. We are born into it because of our common ancestor. And it has been spread to all men. And all people die. And we're all wrestling with the horror of that fact of our sinfulness that we don't measure up, that we're all going to die. But Jesus has come to make that right. He's come to do for us by God's incredible grace what we could never do for ourselves. And so he comes. And Jesus, like Adam, his work is universal in scope, but it's far, far greater than anything that Adam did. And so he's making that comparison. When you see the two side by side, the light shines more brightly. Maybe you experience that at different times. You take two things and you put them side by side. If you're just looking at the one, you don't see the glory of the other. I remember very vividly uh, the first car that I got right after college. I got a, a new, nice car, nothing. It was great. It was a, it was a Nissan. And I was so excited about my car, and I was great. And, and it was. It was a wonderful car, and it did everything it needed to do. But I remember shortly after getting it, going to work for uh, an architect, and I got to ride in his car with him. And he had a brand new Porsche. And I got in his car. And I started to look around and see the finishes and the way it drove and the way it handled. And suddenly my Nissan looked a little different than I thought it had before. And it wasn't that I even knew to know that it was different until you held the two up together. And it's what Paul's doing here. He's showing us that Adam is a type of Christ. And when we see the depths of the horror of the sin that's entered and how it has spread to all men, only then do we start to see the glory of what Jesus has done for us. And so he highlights the differences. He talks about through his disobedience, this trespass has come, but through the one man's obedience will be saved. Uh, that through judgment following the condemnation, but now the free gift following the many trespasses that brings justification. And he starts to show us that through Jesus, all these things that have entered the world and have gotten into everything have been undone through what Christ has done, through Jesus' perfect obedience. And so Jesus comes and lives the life that we haven't lived. And he dies the death that we deserve. And then in his glorious resurrection, he shows us that it's been accepted and that we too can be accepted before God. That all the horrors of sinfulness and the way that it's entered into the world have now been addressed through what Christ has done. And so there's beautiful picture that we are now a new creation in Jesus. That Jesus in his glory and his grace to us has abounded all the more. And he does so by rescuing us from ourselves. It goes back to the way God created us to be. We were never made to be all about ourselves, but about who Jesus is and who God is and what he's done for us. We were always made to be for the display of his glory. And so what God does in Jesus is he comes and he, he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And he gives us his perfect righteousness, which we've been saying through Romans we talked about the glory of that last week, being justified by grace through faith. We put our faith in what Christ has done, not what we do. And what that does is it rescues us from ourselves and it begins to show us it's not about us. It's not about me. And in that working of his grace is a power that begins to turn us from being all about ourselves to seeing the glory of God to truly love him and to love others. We can begin to do good works 
but we don't do good works because we're pretty good people. We begin to do good works because we recognize in and of ourselves there's nothing we can do and it makes us rely on Jesus all the more. Where our sin is, his grace abounds all the more. And so Paul will say at the end of the chapter here in verse 18, Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so instead of death, instead of shame and guilt, instead of condemnation, we now have eternal life through Jesus. And so God's doing has always been to bring about this abounding grace that leads to righteousness and eternal life through Jesus. And so God's ultimate purpose is not judgment, but to display the glory of his grace to us. And so Jesus in his work far outweighs the sinfulness that spread to all men, as Paul's saying. And so I would just ask you this morning as we end, where in your life are you holding back those things? Where are you making it all about you rather than humbling yourselves and and, and completely trusting in Jesus in every area? It's only through what he does for us that he can undo the horrors of sin that have spread into every area of the world. But the glory is because of Jesus' great work, it will all be undone. His grace will cover in every way. And our part is to humble ourselves and to cast our cares on him because he cares for us and he meets us in that by what he's done. And so let's pray this morning. God, we thank you for the glory of what you've done for us in Jesus. I thank you for Romans. Thank you for Romans chapter 5 that shows us that just as sin entered and spread to all things, so too you have undone that work in Jesus. I pray that if there's any today that are wrestling with their sinfulness, with the reality of that, I pray that we would cast ourselves on you, that we would just see clearly that you offer forgiveness through what Jesus has done, that we would trust completely and totally in your doing rather than our own, and we would rest in your finished work. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.